Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 120. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on June 30th, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Last time we followed the theological controversy swirling around Anne Hutchinson through the first day of her civil trial in November 1637. We're going to jump back into the trial, so it would behoove you to listen to the other Anne Hutchinson episodes if you've not done so or done so recently. John Winthrop, again governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and presiding magistrate in the trial of Anne Hutchinson, opened the second day with a summary of the case against Hutchinson, asserting that sufficient proof had been made of the various charges against her. He then offered Hutchinson a chance to respond. She asked that all the witnesses against her be recalled and to swear an oath that their testimony was true. This was no small request, insofar as they all knew that if they lied under oath, they risked eternal damnation. This was not our secular world. Oaths were matters that implicated the hereafter and were not taken lightly by any English person in the New World. Winthrop knew this and said that he knew of no necessity of an oath because these were men of long-approved godliness. Hutchinson stood firm. After they have taken an oath, I will make good what I say. Winthrop, this time the politician, turned to the assembled audience Let those who are not satisfied in the court speak. We are not satisfied, the crowd called out. The demand for an oath sparked a raging controversy with such moments as John Endicott. He had torn down Thomas Morton's Maypole and started the Pequot War, waving his sword around. The matter was deferred, at least, so Hutchinson could call witnesses on her own behalf. Of those, only John Coggeshall, the wealthy silk merchant and one of the magistrates, until he'd been dismissed for supporting the now-expelled Reverend John Wheelwright, had been at the meeting the previous December in which Hutchinson allegedly slandered the ministers of the Bay. He testified, I dare say that she did not say all that which they lay against her. Hugh Peter asked how he dared to contradict the ministers, These would be the same ministers who had resisted swearing an oath that their testimony was true. And Coggeshall said, Mr. Peter takes upon him to forbid me. I shall be silent. And so he was. There was nothing left to do but call John Cotton, the most respected preacher in the colony, and Anne Hutchinson's spiritual inspiration for more than 20 years, most of that time in England. She had swelled his audience in both Bostons. He cared about unity and conformity in the colony, and he cared about the Hutchinsons. After trying to avoid testifying, Cotton would do his best to save her without sacrificing himself. Now let's go to Eve LaPlante, who describes the fateful moment, quote, In the Cambridge courtroom, where he stood beside Mistress Hutchinson, John Cotton hesitated to respond to Winthrop's request to address the general court. I did not think I should be called to bear witness in this cause, and therefore did not labor to call to remembrance 
what was done. He paused. John Winthrop and the court waited. Cotton sought internally to find some place of comfort between the two opposing sides. Watching the long-awaited encounter between Winthrop and Hutchinson's minister, the crowd in the meeting house grew still. Finally, Cotton said, The elders spake that they had heard that she had spoken some condemning words of their ministry. They did first pray her to answer, wherein she thought their ministry did differ from mine. How the comparison sprang, I am ignorant, he noted. But sorry I was that any comparison should be between me and my brethren, and uncomfortable it was. Winthrop was impressed, he confided later, that Cotton was much grieved at Hutchinson's comparisons between the ministers. Cotton recalled her telling the other ministers that they did not hold forth a covenant of grace as I did. But wherein did we differ, they asked. Why, she said, that they did not hold forth the seal of the Spirit as he doth. Where is the difference there, said they. Why, said she, you preach of the seal of the Spirit upon a work, and he upon free grace without a work, or without respect to a work. He preaches the seal of the Spirit upon free grace, and you upon a work. At this Cotton recalled, I told her I was very sorry that she put comparisons between my ministry and theirs, for she had said more than I could myself, and I had rather that she had put us in fellowship with them and not have made that discrepancy. This was the sum of the difference she found, nor did it seem to be so ill taken as it is, John Cotton added, and our brethren did say also that they would not so easily believe reports as they had done, and withal mentioned that they would speak no more of it. And I must say that I did not find her saying that they were under a covenant of works, nor that she said that they did preach a covenant of works. Shorter Cotton, Hutchinson expressed herself incommodiously, and he wished she had not stoked division among the ministers, but she'd not actually slandered the other ministers of the colony. Salem's minister, Hugh Peter, who'd been cleaning up after Roger Williams' influence there, challenged Cotton, "'Do you not remember that she said we were not sealed with the spirit of grace? Therefore, we could not preach a covenant of grace.' Cotton calmly and politely stood his ground, under favor. I do not remember that. The other ministers dissolved into arguing among themselves. Nobody could clearly say what had happened during that meeting 11 months before, which should not surprise anybody who's tried to remember the arcane details of a complicated conversation even 11 days before. Now back to LaPlante, quote, Unbidden, Ann Hutchinson said, My name is Precious, and you do affirm a thing which I utterly deny. Deputy Governor Dudley admonished her for forgetting John Wilson's notes of the meeting. You should have brought the book with you. Hoping to salvage the case against her, he added, They affirm that Mistress Hutchinson did say they were not able ministers of the New Testament. I do not remember it, the Reverend Cotton said once more. Back to me. It was obvious to everybody in the room that the case against Hutchinson had collapsed. She had argued them to a draw on the first two charges, that she had suborned the petition in support of the banished wheelwright and in so doing violated the Fifth Commandment, 
and that there was no basis in scripture for her after-church discussion groups. And nobody could contradict John Cotton's testimony that she had not slandered the other ministers of the Bay. She had won. Unfortunately for Hutchinson, she couldn't control herself. In LaPlante's generous formulation, at this moment, Anne Hutchinson did something entirely in character. Raising her neck and leaning toward her gathered judges, she began to teach the men. Uh Uh-oh. Never teach your judge. It doesn't end well. If you please to give me leave, Hutchinson told the 40 judges before her in the Cambridge meeting house, I shall give you the ground of what I know to be true. Now let's go to Edmund Morgan, still perhaps the greatest historian of Puritan Massachusetts, from his book, The Puritan Dilemma, quote, Winthrop tried to stop her but the floodgates were opened. Suddenly he must have seen where this outpouring might lead and was silent. The minutes raced by as she described how one thing after another had been revealed to her through scriptural passages thrust into her mind by God. To the Puritans, this was an acceptable form of revelation. But then, still to the accompaniment of biblical citations, she came to the revelation that she would come to New England and there be persecuted, but need fear no more than Daniel in the lion's den. And see, she cried, this scripture fulfilled this day in mine eyes. Therefore, take heed what ye go about to do to me. God will ruin you and your posterity and this whole state." Here was the naked challenge. Winthrop and his colleagues believed that the Lord would punish Massachusetts if they did not punish Hutchinson. Obviously, either she or they were deluded. And they asked her, how did she know that it was God that did reveal these things to her and not Satan? With a final scriptural flourish to justify what she was about to do, and with confidence in the Lord's deliverance, Hutchinson at last threw off the confining authority of the Bible and swept arrogantly on. Hutchinson, how did Abraham know that it was God that bid him offer his son, being a breach of the sixth commandment? The court, by an immediate voice. Hutchinson, so to me by an immediate revelation. The court, how? An immediate revelation? Hutchinson, by the voice of his own spirit to my soul. Here it was at last, an acknowledgement of the heresy so long suspected. The Lord had indeed disclosed who is deluded, but he left it to the court to strike her down. Winthrop recorded that the court and all the rest of the assembly, except those of her own party, did observe a special providence of God, that her own mouth should deliver her into the power of the court as guilty of that which all suspect her for, but were not furnished with proof sufficient to proceed against her. It required only the briefest deliberation for the court to agree that Hutchinson's words were sufficient cause for banishment. And when she said, I desire to know wherefore I am banished, Winthrop gave the shabby final word, say no more, The court knows wherefore and is satisfied. Back to me. 
For those of you not as immersed in this as your friendly podcaster, the heresies here were two. First, the Puritans were quite certain that the scriptures were the only source of revelation permitted by God. Any other source, including one's own epiphany, was suspect because it might be the work of Satan. In fairness, how was one to know? Second, to the Puritans, it was axiomatic that one could never be certain that he was destined for salvation or justified in the terminology of the day, meaning found by God to be just. Indeed, certainty in one's own justification was itself deemed as evidence that one was not, in fact, justified. The Hutchinson faction had gone one calamitous step further. They had in many cases claimed that they knew whether others were justified or not. They believed that they knew who was saved and who was not. The problem before the court had been to prove it in a day when evidence was hard to come by. There being no email or Twitter, there was no written record of their heresy. And Hutchinson's compulsion to teach even the magistrates of the Bay Colony had provided that evidence. Here, then, is a hot take you won't get from reading LaPlante. Hutchinson's need to be right to teach her judges had not only guaranteed her own conviction, it had betrayed her own followers. In fact, I abbreviate Hutchinson's speech considerably so that this doesn't become the Anne Hutchinson podcast. LaPlante quotes the trial transcript for several pages in her book. It must have been quite a moment and no doubt intensely irritating to those in the general court who had not seen the opportunity that Winthrop had. It even turned the devoted but practical John Cotton, who up to that point had tried to support her with his cloudy memory and ambiguous testimony. Now he said that he remembered, quote, she said she should be delivered by God's providence. Not quite a stab in the back, but manifestly a desertion of her. Now, it is not clear whether Hutchinson actually altered her fate with her confession. There certainly have been historians who argued that the court was going to banish Hutchinson on whatever grounds it could manufacture. Supposing that is true, and I've got my doubts, actually, it remains the case that Hutchinson made it much easier for Winthrop and company to banish her and reunify the colony, because even her remaining supporters in Boston, still perhaps a majority even, found it hard to defend her startling claim that God had revealed his will directly to her. And it went beyond that. She had wound up her teaching with a threat delivered on behalf of God. She had said, Take heed what you go about to do to me. God will ruin you and your posterity and this whole state. Back to me. There's obviously a logical problem in this. Hutchinson is, in effect, arguing that God will punish the entire nation, in this case, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, if it insists that she's a heretic. In arguing for points of theology in direct conflict with a conventional take, Hutchinson was, in effect, agreeing with the idea that there must be religious conformity within the Bay. But Hutchinson believed everybody else should conform to her rather than the reverse. This is important evidence that she was not, as argued by many modern historians, an advocate for freedom of religion, a question to which we will briefly return a bit later in this episode. Perhaps we can acknowledge the emotion of the moment and imagine that she was overcome by stress, pregnancy, and sickness, 
and said more than she actually believed. But neither is it difficult to imagine that by calling down the wrath of God and predicting the ruination of Massachusetts, she weakened the resolve of her supporters to die on her particular hill. There's one other point from which I cannot avert my irony-loving eyes. Just about a hundred years ago, the state of Massachusetts erected a statue of Anne Hutchinson on its statehouse grounds, where it joined such luminaries as Horace Mann and Daniel Webster. Her fame, even then, as the first widely known woman in American history, apparently trumped her promise, acting at God's appointment, that God would ruin the whole state. Like Anne or not, deplore Winthrop or not, the statute was only possible because Hutchinson was wrong, at least if one takes the long view. Then again, perhaps Hutchinson was referring to the revocation of the Bay Colony's charter in 1684, 47 years after her invocation of God's apparently delayed wrath. Only she and he, capitalized of course, know the answer. Winter was coming fast, and even the enraged magistrates would not expel Hutchinson into the freezing wilderness as they had Roger Williams. Some of this may have been pity, but there remained unfinished business, because her civil trial had exposed heresies that went beyond mere error. She could no longer remain in the church. She would need to be excommunicated, and that was not a purely administrative action. Recall that members of a Puritan church entered into a covenant, a contract, with a congregation and God. It could not be severed unilaterally. That is why church members needed permission of their church to leave. There needed to be an ecclesiastical hearing, which could only happen after more months of preparation. The now sentenced Anne Hutchinson could not, however, be given freedom within the colony nor was it considered safe to keep her in Boston, where visitors might spread her message and reopen the division that the general court had worked so hard to close. She was confined at the house of a minister in Roxbury, only a couple of miles away. In the severe New England winter of 1637 and 38, that was far enough to keep her reasonably isolated. Meanwhile, her male followers who would not repudiate her a good many of the leading men of Boston, had been disenfranchised and disarmed. Some had been banished, and others were committed to following Hutchinson even if they were allowed to stay. John Wheelwright, who had a bit of a head start, had declined an invitation from Roger Williams to join him at Providence. He had fled north and spent that winter in New Hampshire. By April 1638, he'd purchased land in today's Exeter, New Hampshire, and there was joined by roughly 20 other people. Today, they are regarded as the founders of Exeter. The rest of the men, including Anne's husband Will, did accept an invitation from Williams. He had recommended they settle on a Quidnick Island, the largest in Narragansett Bay, and today the site of Newport at its southern end and Portsmouth at the northern. Williams, still best buds with the Narragansett sachems, Recall that his diplomacy had kept them on the English side in the Pequot War, arranged for the sale of the island to the Hutchinsonian emigres. On March 7, 1638, while Anne was still on house arrest in Roxbury, the male followers of Hutchinson signed the document that would come to be known as the Portsmouth Compact. 
In addition to Will Hutchinson, the signers included William Coddington, John Clark, the young minister is believed to have authored the document, John Coggeshall, William Aspinwell, William Dyer, who was the husband to Anne Hutchinson's closest friend, Mary Dyer, and various of Anne's male sons and sons-in-law. The Portsmouth Compact is brief, as such documents tended to be. Quote, We whose names are underwritten do solemnly, in the presence of Jehovah, incorporate ourselves into a body politic, and as he shall help, we'll submit our persons, lives, and estate unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to all those most perfect and most absolute laws of his given in his holy word of truth, to be guided and judged thereby. The modern argument that Anne Hutchinson was a tribune for religious freedom rests not so much on the Portsmouth Compact, which looks for all the world like a covenant to create a strictly religious society in accordance to one view of God's law, but in the subsequent behavior of her male followers. One of their first acts on arriving at Aquidneck, even before Anne Hutchinson joined them later that spring, was to pass a rule that, quote, no person within the said colony at any time hereafter shall be in any way molested, punished, disquieted, or called into question on matters of religion, so long as he keeps the peace. Several things might be said about this. I found no evidence that this rule sprang from Hutchinson's theology. Her behavior in Boston, including at the end of her own trial, does not suggest any of the deep reasoning of the sort that led Roger Williams to his adamantine commitment to freedom of conscience. She said that she judged for herself who was justified and who was not, and her followers sought to convert other churches to her view. At no point did she go with live and let live. In fairness, we are all handicapped in judging this because Hutchinson, unlike Williams, left no written record of her thinking. There may be a simpler explanation, though. My own guess, and I use that word advisedly, is that the Hutchinsonian men, having been victimized by the rigid conformity of the Bay, were reacting against it. They quite simply agreed not to do to each other what had been done to them. And, of course, they had a compelling reason to be grateful to Williams, who'd arranged for their settlement. In the immortal words of the Eagles, every form of refuge has its price. And yet all of that said, Hutchinson's followers had now established for the second time that Rhode Island would be a refuge for religious nonconformists. Soon after signing the Portsmouth Compact, Hutchinson's followers got on a ship and sailed around Cape Cod with all the possessions they could carry. They traveled first to Providence Plantation, where Roger Williams arranged a sit-down with Myantanami and Canonicus. You remember those guys? There they presented the sachems with 40 fathoms of wampum, 10 coats, and 20 hoes in exchange for the island. The deed, which remarkably survives, includes the marks of the two sachems and three other Indians, and the signatures of Randall Holden, who represented the Hutchinsonians, and Roger Williams. The new settlers then got back on board their ship and sailed the 15 miles to the northern tip of Aquidneck, where they established Portsmouth. 
Meanwhile, Anne Hutchinson went to trial, this time an ecclesiastical proceeding, for the second time on March 15, 1638. She'd been on house arrest since November and was now prominently pregnant, or so it seemed. During the winter, the conventional Puritan ministers had rotated through Roxbury in a concerted effort to get Hutchinson to recant. They had long conversations, notionally in private. During these conversations, Hutchinson did not recant anything, at least that we know of, but she apparently did concede that she believed at least some of the nonconforming views attributed to her. These concessions would be used against her in the hearing to determine her excommunication, which Hutchinson would, correctly I think, argue was a betrayal of a private confidence, a breach of church rule, in her words. I'm going to spare you the details of the excommunication trial. The theology was so complicated that even Winthrop wrote later that he did not understand the arguments being made. Well, I'm no John Winthrop, and even if I could do it justice, I'd probably bore myself to death in the doing of it. The reason for the complexity had to do with the Puritan compulsion to unravel the covenant between the accused, the church, and God. One could not simply say, I break with thee three times and throw dog poop on their shoes. Rather, the involved, multi-step process required to enter into a covenant with the church, basically demonstrating probable justification, had to be unwound step by step. That required a lot of disputation. You'll need to read LaPlante's book for the give and take, which is mostly interesting for a closer look at John Cotton's backing away from Hutchinson and the ministerial rage, condescension, and sexism of the proceedings. Suffice it to say that if you did not like the civil trial, you'll positively hate the ecclesiastical one. Oh, and if you didn't get the break with the reference, it's only because you are a young person or a failing memory. GTS, man. Family podcast, etc., etc. There was one exchange in the church trial that was amusing, at least to me. Thomas Shepard, the Cambridge minister who had touched off the Hutchinson crisis by confronting Cotton in the fall of 1636, accused Anne of being a very dangerous woman to sow her corrupt opinions to the infection of many. Hutchinson replied, I did not hold diverse of these things I'm accused of, but did only ask a question. Shepard erupted, The vilest errors that ever were brought into the church were brought by way of questions. Now, anybody's hung out on Twitter more than is good for their peace of mind knows all about the only asking questions troll. Shepard reacted almost exactly as people do today. Gotta say that cracked me up a bit. The first day of the ecclesiastical trial seems, in Eve LaPlante's telling, to have been an extended berating of Anne Hutchinson. She was to return one week later on March 22, 1638. She spent much of that week with John Cotton, who did his damnedest, or something like that, to save her soul. When her hearing resumed, she was invited to respond to the charges, described as errors, that had been put to her. This time Hutchinson surprised. She confessed her errors. She listed them one by one, acknowledging that she'd been deeply deceived, held dangerous opinions, and all of that. 
She further apologized for her prophecy of the colony's doom the previous November, quote, I confess I did it rashly and out of heat of spirit and unadvisedly, and have cause to be sorry for my unreverent carriage to them, and I am heartily sorry that anything I have said has drawn any from hearing any of the elders of the bay. Finally, there were a few alleged errors in doctrine that she denied ever having held. Unfortunately, the ministers did not believe that Anne was being sincere. There are at least three reasons for this, although from across the years and with such sparse documentation, it's very difficult to know how much weight to assign to each. First, they did not believe Hutchinson because they were predisposed not to. Part of that is that she had proven so adept at parsing language legalistically and responding evasively that their guard was up. Also, it was the nature of the proceedings at that time and in that place that accused heretics were inherently instruments of Satan, who was understood to be a great deceiver. Second, Anne reinforced these predispositions with a careful and perhaps too clever qualification in her recantation. She claimed that she had only been in error since she had been in custody of the authorities, and that whatever errors she had committed came from misunderstanding the men who were interrogating her. This essentially meant that she denied any errors alleged before her civil trial had begun. There was a certain internal procedural logic to that position, and perhaps a lawyer like John Winthrop might have admired the craft in it, but it infuriated the ministers. Finally, she was not deemed to be sufficiently abject in her repentance for it to be believed. That was consistent with her personality. Anne was extremely confident, highly charismatic, and proud. But that didn't make her a good or willing actor. Most people can distinguish between genuine apologies and pro forma ones, and Hutchinson's probably came off as pro forma. There was extensive and irritated back and forth with more hurling of scripture and accusations of bad faith, whereupon the ministers determined that there was no opposition to excommunicating Hutchinson. Even Cotton had seen the necessity of it, other than from her close friends and relatives. The Reverend Wilson, who was the titular leader of the Boston Church and had labored to contain Hutchinson's theological insurrection, pronounced the sentence, quote, For as much as you, Mistress Hutchinson, have highly transgressed and offended, and for as much as you have so many ways troubled the church with your errors, and have drawn away many a poor soul, and have upheld your revelations, and for as much as you have made a lie, therefore, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the name of the church, I do not only pronounce you worthy to be cast out, but I do cast you out, and in the name of Christ, I do deliver you up to Satan, that you may learn no more to blaspheme, to seduce, and to lie. Therefore, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ and of this church as a leper to withdraw yourself out of the congregation. That is, formally, you have despised and condemned the holy ordinances of God and turn your back on them, so you may now have no part in them nor benefit by them. Back to me. Anne Hutchinson turned and walked to the door of the church. In LaPlante's telling, Winthrop stared as she turned back to face him and all the other magistrates, church elders, and even her former teacher. 
the governor was struck that her spirits, which seemed before to be somewhat dejected, revived again, and she gloried in her sufferings. The Lord judges not as man judges, she said to all of her judges. Better to be cast out of the church than to deny Christ. Hand in hand with her friend Mary Dyer, Anne Hutchinson exited the church. Back to me. Mary Dyer, it would turn out, would not be a well-behaved woman either. This moment would be, for all intents and purposes, the end of the theological crisis in the Bay Colony. There would be another year of mopping up with occasional banishments and other sanctions on straggling Hutchinsonians. But most of those who did not move to Rhode Island would play ball, and by the end of 1639, Winthrop would conclude that all was well. The rest of Anne's story is both tragic and triumphant and worth touching upon before some closing remarks. After her dramatic departure from the church, Anne and several of her children went to Mount Wollaston, where her sister-in-law, Mary Hutchinson Wheelwright, still lived, while her husband, the banished John Wheelwright, was preparing their new home in Exeter. During that last week in March 1638, while Anne was staying with Mary Wheelwright, the Dutch East India Company would appoint William Kieft as the director of New Netherland, succeeding Wouter von Twiller. This decision would, strangely enough, have profound consequences for Anne Hutchinson. On the first day of April, the official start of her banishment, Anne, several of her children, the Dyers, and several other families began the six-day walk to Rhode Island. Some of her older children had started families and would stay in Massachusetts. Within a week, the party had reached Roger Williams' Providence Plantation, two years after its founding, still with fewer than 100 residents. From there, the group sailed south to Aquidneck, where Anne and Will were reunited. They'd been living apart for nearly six months, by far the longest separation in their 26 years of marriage. The settlers on Aquidneck carved up the land on the northern part of the island, fencing off a meadowed peninsula for the grazing of livestock. They elected the wealthy William Coddington as their leader. He would prove to be rather tedious in that role, and after some internal strife, would move with some of his followers to the southern tip of the island and establish the town of Newport early the next year. Yachtsmen are forever grateful. In late May or early June, Anne went into labor six weeks early. She delivered not a child, but a strange mass of tissue resembling a, a handful of transparent gooseberries or grapes, in quotes. It was a rare anomaly, now known as a hydatidiform mole, caused by a sperm fertilizing an egg that has lost its DNA. In today's United States, fewer than one pregnancy in a thousand suffers the defect. Perhaps Anne Hutchinson, who had a long career as a midwife, had seen the phenomenon before, but odds are that it was the first in Massachusetts. Regardless, she hemorrhaged in the delivery and almost died. Word of her strange delivery soon got back to Boston, where it became the talk of the town, evidence to many that she was indeed a heretic and that God had forsaken her. That Mary Dyer 
Anne's close friend had delivered a monstrously deformed stillbirth a few months before suggested a pattern. The ministers of the colony, including John Cotton, made sure that everybody understood the connection. Anne recovered and again began to teach. There was as yet no church on a quidnick, now increasingly called Rhode Island, so services were informal. Hutchinson never led a service or took upon herself the role of minister. That would have been shocking for a woman to do, even among these outcasts. But she continued with her discussion groups after services. John Winthrop never stopped worrying about her influence and kept careful tabs on her from Boston. Neither had the Boston church given up on persuading Hutchinson to recant. In February 1640, Winthrop sent three church members, quote, men of a loving and winning spirit, to Rhode Island to see if they could move her. It did not go well. On learning the visitors were from the Church of Boston, Hutchinson said, I know no such church, neither will I own it. You may call it the whore and strumpet of Boston, but no Church of Christ. Having come all that way, the three loving men tracked down Will, hoping he could help. From this encounter, we have the only spoken words attributed to him. I am more nearly tied to my wife than to the church. I do think her to be a dear saint and servant of God. At some point in the first part of 1542, Anne's beloved husband, Will, has liberated a man as was conceivable in those days, died. We do not know the exact date, because there was no church on Rhode Island then, and the keeping of birth and death records was ordinarily the responsibility of the local church. Ministers from Massachusetts, still worried that her ideas might spread from Rhode Island and still hoping for a recantation, visited Anne again. Again, she refused to recant. The men of God told her that Massachusetts would soon take over Rhode Island. They probably believed that. Little did they know that Roger Williams would foil them at every turn. But that's another story. Anne Hutchinson would take no chances. She sent a letter to the authorities in New Amsterdam asking for authorization to settle in the territory of New Netherland. They granted a request, and she purchased land on the water in the territory that we know as the Bronx, named after a Dutchman named Jonas Bronck, its first European settler. In the summer of 1642, now 51, Hutchinson packed up her household, now a party of 16 people, including some servants, and sailed to her new home on Pelham Bay. She shipped her livestock, furniture, and other heavy belongings by land. They settled near a rock just up from an inlet, with a big split in the middle. It's known today as Split Rock, and it sits inside the clover leaf of the Hutchinson River Parkway and Interstate 95, just at the corner of the Split Rock Golf Course. The Hutchinsons were the only English people in the area. There were Dutch settlers in the region and Indians of the Siwanoi tribe. William Kieft, a bellicose man of poor judgment, repeatedly antagonized the tribes of the region. Tensions were mounting, and the Dutch neighbors of the Hutchinsons suggested that they arm themselves. Anne declined, saying that she did not want guns in the house, and in any case, it always had good relations with the Indians of Massachusetts. The following summer, war in fact broke out. The brutal fighting we know today as 
Keefe's War, the bloodiest moment in the history of New Netherland. A few English veterans of the Pequot War joined in the fighting, including, ironically, John Underhill, who'd been one of Hutchinson's followers back in Boston. Now to Eve LaPlante's account of Anne's final moment. Quote, The weather was clear on the July day that Anne's Dutch neighbors told her to remove her family from the house. The Siwanoi warriors are coming, the neighbors said. They've sent a warning. We must disappear. The Siwanoi were responding to a surprise attack ordered by Keefe on a band of natives camping on Manhattan Island the previous February, in which Dutch soldiers had killed 80 men, women, and children. Hearing the warning from her neighbors, Anne Hutchinson repeated her long history of good relations with the natives. She would not arm herself, nor would she and her children abandon their home. She had great faith in herself and even more faith in Christ. Should any harm come to her, she would trust in the will of God. The Siwanoi warriors stampeded into the tiny settlement above Pelham Bay, prepared to burn down every house. The Siwanoi chief, Wampage, who had sent the warning, expected to find no settlers present. But at one house, the men in animal skins encountered several children, young men and women, and a woman just past middle age. One Siwanoi indicated that the Hutchinsons should restrain the family dogs. Without apparent fear, one of the family tied up the dogs. As quickly as possible, the Siwanoi seized and scalped Francis Hutchinson, William Collins, several servants, the two Anns, mother and daughter, and the younger children, William, Catherine, Mary, and Zuriel. As the story was later recounted in Boston, one of the Hutchinson's daughters, seeking to escape, was caught as she was getting over a hedge, and they drew her back again by the hair of the head to the stump of a tree, and there cut off her head with a hatchet. The Siwanoi warriors dragged the settlers' bodies into the house, followed by their cattle. The men set fire to the dwelling, which burned to the ground. There were, it seemed, no survivors, nor any burial or grave for the dead. Back to me. People play golf on the site of that massacre today. There was, in fact, one survivor. Young Susan Hutchinson, then nine, was near Split Rock, picking berries. Siwanoi found her hiding in the crevice. They took her captive, and their cheap Wampage adopted her. He also changed his name to Anne Hick, it being the custom of Siwanoi warriors to take the name of their most illustrious victim. Susan would live with the Siwanoi for her teenage years, eventually returning to Boston at age 18 in the early 1650s. She would marry John Cole and move to Rhode Island, where they would have 11 children. There she would die at age 80 in 1713. And surviving children, including those left behind in Boston, would produce an astonishing number of descendants, including, it must be said, Eve LaPlante, who would write American Jezebel, The Uncommon Life of Anne Hutchinson, The Woman Who Defied the Puritans, in 2004. Her famous descendants would be many, including, as mentioned, three American presidents, Oliver Wendell Holmes, George and Mitt Romney, and various of the Pratt family who would co-found the Church of the Latter-day Saints. 
Hutchinson was not actually the last person in her line who would be persecuted for spreading allegedly heretical religious beliefs. At the beginning of this series, I said that one's view of Anne Hutchinson was something of a Rorschach test, meaning that it says as much about the person judging her and her legacy as it does of Anne herself. For what it's worth, here are the things I believe are likely to be true and not likely to be true, but your results may vary. Much of what is written about Hutchinson is speculation, and my opinions are no less so. Hutchinson had an inclination learned from her father to question authority, especially church authority. She failed to learn from her father that not all such fights could be won, at least in this world. She was extraordinarily smart, confident, and charismatic. The evidence for this was in her capacity to draw crowds of people who would listen to her, support her, and follow her into exile. It's not difficult to imagine that such adulation fed some fairly serious narcissism, as is often the case with inspiring and charismatic leaders. That narcissism fed her conviction, which led her to claim she knew who was justified and who wasn't. It also meant that she did not seem to much care what would happen to her followers when she refused to budge before the authorities of the Bay. It is said that Hutchinson was an early advocate for religious freedom. Perhaps she ended up that way in exile in Roger Williams, Rhode Island. Unlike Williams, who wrote voluminously, there's no evidence that she reached that position as a philosophical matter. At least until her trial, all evidence that I have seen points to the opposite, that she believed the Bay should conform to her theology. There was no evidence that she believed in, as I've said before, live and let live in religious matters. It has been fashionable for almost a hundred years to see Hutchinson as having been persecuted by the conventional Puritans. Remember that she was a Puritan herself, and she certainly was. This has been a popular position for her admirers to take, in that the Puritans have been falling out of favor since at least the time of Nathaniel Hawthorne. But stand in their buckled shoes for just a moment. Winthrop City on the Hill was designed from the beginning to be a conventional and conforming Puritan enclave, still officially under the Church of England, but free, because of the intervening ocean, to practice their religion without interference. They had endured great hardships to build their society, and they would defend it. And Hutchinson knew all of that before she sailed for Massachusetts. By her own actions, she subscribed to the fundamental premise of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then she made a conscious decision, however sincere and well-motivated, to break the colony apart. She had arguably breached the covenant she had made when she joined the Boston Church. Winthrop and the other magistrates could not avoid prosecuting Hutchinson without trashing the entire premise of their colony, and in their view, risking the wrath of God. Even Hutchinson's minister of more than 20 years, John Cotton, understood that fundamental problem. All of that having been said, she's been famous in this country almost from the moment she got here. More than one of her descendants has written a history of her days, Whatever the answer to the questions raised by those histories and others, we still feel her impact, and not just because so many of us have been stuck in traffic on the highway that bears her name. Her descendants have 
all been inspired by her. Would Oliver Wendell Holmes, FDR, or even George W. Bush have been the men they were if the memory of her legacy had not infused their families for generations? Rather than holding up Anne Hutchinson as a tribute of religious freedom or a proto-feminist or an uncompromising foe of the Puritans, perhaps a real impact, like that of Roger Williams, is in her fearless example in dissent, a national cultural trait that many Americans, including me, value most highly. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And you can buy the books I mentioned, including Evil Plants, through links in the episode notes on the website. And follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly, but not exclusively, history-related topics. Until next time. <laughs>